Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everyone, Ben Kaznoka, partner here at Village Global. Today on the podcast, we have Ramit Sethi. Ramit is CEO of I Will Teach You To Be Rich, one of the world's most popular online personal finance and education businesses. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Ramit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You are an entrepreneur, writer, blogger, guru, author. You've had such an interesting career in life. And today in this conversation, we're going to talk about entrepreneurship and venture capital, personal finance, and a new podcast you're launching about love, relationships, and money, which is really exciting and everyone should check out. Give us a sense of the scale of the business today. So sort of how many readers, how do you think about, what what can you share publicly about uh, your reach as a business? Um, We have millions of readers. We have hundreds of thousands of subscribers on our newsletter, over close to 50,000 customers. And we really love what we do because we focus on helping people live a rich life. And when I think about most of the personal finance advice out there, when I started learning and reading about it, it just didn't apply to me. I didn't want some old person telling me, I can't go spend money on lattes, can't go on vacation. I actually wanted to go out with my friends. And then later in life, I wanted to take nice vacations. And then when I learned about entrepreneurship, I realized, oh my gosh, there's no limit to how much I can earn. And so being able to take some of the things that I learned in college, also in Silicon Valley, and distill them in a way that's applicable for ordinary people, whether it be the negotiation techniques that I learned with my friends at Stanford, or whether it be things like how do you identify customers, which I learned some of in Silicon Valley, boy, that is really helpful when you can package that and show people rich examples so they can change their life. Yeah, so let's dig in a little bit to your to the overarching worldview of the I will teach empire. Because um, you have you, you know you have you said you have only fifty thousand customers. These are people paying for these sort of expensive courses in which they're investing in themselves and engaging with video content and community to get better across a range of topics. But unpack a little bit like the Ramit worldview as it relates to money, personal <laughs> finance, and success. Because you have a lot of you've written about so many different topics. Your email. Emails are always provocative, and you know uh, maybe I'll 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 start with one of the principles that I've taken from you. I mean, I feel like you've for you've always been preaching this idea that it's a better investment to think about how you can earn more money in life in your career rather than try to, uh, as you said, save on lattes or or become more frugal in some way, and so yeah. expand the the possibilities for how much money you can make in your whatever career you're in. Um, but do you consider is that a fair way of summarizing a sort of cornerstone belief? I think that's one of the core beliefs of I will teach you to be rich. You know, there's a limit to how much you can cut, but no limit to how much you can earn. And that is actually quite provocative to most people because we've been raised almost as if we have a fixed pie and therefore we need to become very territorial about what we've got. This is one of the reasons among many that people become so irrational about paying taxes. Oh, this is all the money I'm ever going to have. So better not take it away from me. Fixed pie thinking, scarcity-based thinking. I also believe that most of us spend our time asking $3 questions when we really should be asking $30,000 questions. These, what I call big wins in life. In other words, It doesn't matter how much that salad at Whole Foods or Safeway costs. 
is going to make no difference in your life if you buy pre-cut vegetables or a latte. What matters way more, finding a job and making sure you're paid well for it. If you start a business, make sure that you choose the right market. Make sure you've got credit. And I would say almost above all, make sure you're automatically investing and saving every single month. You do those things, you're never going to have to worry about buying an extra dessert or a large coffee again. So there's a couple of things there. There's there's definitely like pick a market or develop a set of skills that are highly valued in the marketplace, which is which is essential in our in our book, the start uh, startup review. We talk about finding the combination of assets, aspirations, and market realities that can lead to both a fulfilling life and a economically remunerative career. But you also just for me mentioned a sort of a what I think of more as a personal finance tactic, which is every month put money away and watch the power of compounding do its thing over time. I'm curious in the realm of tactics, I completely agree. And I think it's it's a great reminder on the big picture stuff. But if you're a frugal founder and you're frugal, not necessarily by choice, just because you know you, you, you've thrown your life savings into your business or you're not paying yourself very much because you're you're the CEO and you're trying to pay your employees, what are a few of the tactics that a founder should have in mind? Like it's what I'm hearing you say is no matter what your savings base make it a habit to every month put a little bit of money into what the stock market or a or a savings account what's the, yeah. what's the specific advice well first if you are making no money as a founder i know what that's like and you know the only thing that anyone can tell you is to get as creative as you can but if you do have a small income i strongly 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 recommend automating your savings and investment by the way ben most of my founder friends do not do this do you understand how ridiculous that is they are pretty wealthy. They are very successful from their career perspective. And you know what they do? They think they're too smart to invest. And this is exactly what they say. Why would I put my money in an index fund? I could make way more by putting it all into my business. I said, okay, uh, how many businesses do you know that last 60 years? They get kind of quiet. I go, you think your business is going to be around 60 years? They get even quieter. I said, even if it is, and I hope it is, don't you think it'd be nice to have an asynchronous bet over here in a public market where you know consistently you're going to get about 7 to 8% returns? And they go, well, you know, I really like to angel invest. I go, you suck at angel investing. You're horrible at it. You have no good deal flow. You have no diversification. You're terrible. And they go, well, I had this one hit. Look at your 25 others. So it's extremely important that you don't think you're too smart for what you actually are. You're probably great as an entrepreneur, but take some of that money and put it into a low-cost diversified index fund. So, so totally. And I d- definitely agree on the diversification point. And for anyone who's has a lot of their net worth sunk into their own company or other startups, it's use, it's, it is worthwhile to take some of your assets and invest it in public equities. So that's one piece of advice, but you're also using the word automation. So when you say even smart people aren't automated, are you talking about setting up like a monthly transfer from your checking account to a a brokerage account or something? Yeah. So one of my worldviews was dramatically shaped by my work in social psychology. And that is to understand the difference between what we say is important and what our behavior actually reflects. And I remember learning some of these basic principles in the persuasive tech lab at Stanford and many other places. And then as I run my own company, 
I run thousands and thousands of experiments to see, for example, will people follow up on certain things? That's core to my business. I remember, for example, early on, I had some friends who asked me for free access to one of my programs. First of all, never ask an entrepreneur for free access. Just pay. Pay full price. Anyway, they asked. So I didn't know what to say at the time. So I said, okay, here you go. I could monitor um, the progress throughout those courses. Of all the people I gave free access to, zero of them even logged in. So this is just a great example of um, how hard it is to actually take action on things that even we know is important. That's why you know, in, in my book, chapter five, I talk about automation. You should spend less than one hour a month on your money. Your money automatically flows just like your email filters. It comes into your inbox. It comes into your checking account. It moves to the correct investment accounts including your vacation fund, your guilt-free spending fund, and you get on with your life. You write a lot about in your books and blog, Ramit, about this idea of invisible scripts. Uh, explain that concept. Invisible scripts are beliefs that are so deeply held that they're invisible to us. So here's an invisible script in America is I need to buy a house. Do you? Maybe, maybe not. Is it a great investment? Eh, for a lot of people, no. But that's what we have been fed as a message. It's part of Americana. In Silicon Valley, we have a lot of invisible scripts. One of them is, I need a co-founder. Another one is, I need 20% month-over-month growth. Where'd that come from? We all know it came from a blog post. And there's a lot of interesting data behind it, but that doesn't mean that's how your business has to run. And um, you know, there was even invisible scripts early on about, I need to live in this city in order to get funded. Funny how that's changed dramatically. So when we talk about invisible scripts with our money, these are very, very deeply held. And one place you can go to start understanding what your own views are is to ask yourself, what do I remember my parent or parents talking about around the dinner table? Many of them will say something like, we don't talk about money in this house, Ben, or the rich are evil, Ramit, or whatever these phrases are. And it is uncanny when I speak to people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and they are struggling with something around money. Oftentimes it's, I have money, but I can't bring myself to spend it. That's very common, especially in the Bay Area. And I'll say, why do you think that is? And we track it back and it's something that they overheard at the age of six, which 40 years later is still affecting their behavior. Certainly, I think it's certainly my experience with people who are hyper frugal. And I, I grew up pretty frugal myself. I and mean, I remember when McDonald's were running those Monopoly games. Do you remember those? Yeah. Uh, I would go in and basically dumpster dive for <laughs> hash brown, the boxes of hash browns to get extra stickers. And then would use the stickers to get the free uh, food. And then would take the little cup that you'd fill up for water for the little ketchup thing little cup that you put ketchup in, I'd go into the bathroom and fill it up with water as a free drink instead of buying a drink. And, you know, when I reflect on where uh, that came from, I think it came obviously from my family and, and my parents were super frugal, but we're not always very aware of, of this. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a broad truth about, you know, previous episode I did with Brad Feld, uh, who just wrote a book about Nietzsche and entrepreneurship. We talked about this issue of blind spots and awareness. Um, it was something that Nietzsche wrote a lot about. Uh, and in the personal finance realm is just uh, full of these unconscious biases, assumptions, you call them invisible scripts. So it's, it's, it's a worthwhile thing to interrogate. I guess it raises sort of the question of how do you, how do you become aware of which invisible scripts might be 
uh, rule in your life without you knowing it? Well, you know, the, the common answers are you ask yourself, who have you surrounded yourself with? Yes, you are the average of five people. Um, you take a, a critical look at your own behavior. I'm talking about tangible, observable behavior. And then you try to match it up with some of your beliefs. In truth, it's really, really hard to interrogate your own beliefs. So I found a more effective uh, approach, which is sort of the core of what I do in my business. I ask people, what is your rich life? And people almost always have one of three answers. Um, the first answer is, I want to do what I want when I want. I say, great. What do you want? Complete silence as a response. Because most of us have never actually thought beyond that trite answer. The next answer uh, that people have is they have a number. And a lot of tech dudes have a very thoughtful number. They've calculated their 4% Trinity withdrawal rate. They've done it all. And they tell me, you know, it's, I want a million bucks or I want 6 million bucks. Okay. Does that depend on your age? Does it depend on your location? What are you going to do with that money? Again, more silence. Because everybody teaches us how to save. Nobody teaches us how to spend. And uh, we have a lot of people who are more comfortable living in a spreadsheet, sell C2, never talk back to me, than actually engaging with life outside the spreadsheet and deciding what they're going to do with their money. The third answer is the most haunting. People will say, I just want to get out of debt. But I don't, I don't find it very inspirational, although I understand the feeling of overwhelm. But if your rich life is to get to zero, it's not very motivating. So the best way to interrogate these invisible scripts is to first get crystal clear on what your rich life is, and then you can start to untangle what's holding you back from getting there. So let's talk about that second, that second example of having a number. You know, so if someone has a goal, what I see is a lot of people set a number, they hit the number, and then the, the yards, you know, the, 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 the number two axis. Um, and you know, in the tech industry where there's a lot of wealth creation, especially these last 20 years, the numbers can get very, very large very quickly. You know, it's like, oh, I want to, I want to be worth five million dollars. Okay, now I'm worth five million. Okay, now I need 20 million dollars in savings. Okay, I have 20, now I need 60. And it's it's interesting when I talk to people who've gone through that transformation. Sometimes you get silence. Sometimes actually there's they have concrete like notions. For example, just at the extreme of wealth, there's a friend of mine who has made a lot of money investing in entrepreneurship, crypto, and can fly private, but he can't fly private internationally because that's another layer of expense. That's another level of expense. So his number, which he thought it was like the peak of success is flying private. And then he realized, oh wait, I can fly from New York to San Francisco, but I can't fly from like New York to Tokyo private. And you know, psychologists refer to these things as hedonic treadmill, other other phrases to capture this this seemingly universal essence of psychology. I guess, how do you think about the idea that you can have a financial goal and the goal can shift? I mean, is it always a bad thing? Is there anything? Could there be actually something totally fine and rational about? Oh, you thought all you wanted was X dollars, and now you got to that point of comfort financially, and you've decided to three X your lifestyle ambition. Like, how do you think about that? First of all, I have no problem with the hedonic treadmill. I think it's real and we should acknowledge it. I find that most of the money advice out there tries to shove this concept down people's throat that the hedonic treadmill is evil and you should stay away from it. When has that ever worked? It's as core as it gets, which is if you make more, you're going to want to change your lifestyle. Yes, there's nothing surprising about that. Let's acknowledge that. So instead of denying it, let's make a plan for what we're going to do with our money. I remember 
uh, early on, if you'd asked me, what's your rich life? It was so simple. I would have said, I want to be able to order appetizers when I go out to eat. Why? Because growing up, we never could afford that with my family. And then it kind of expanded. I want to be able to jump in a taxi instead of having to go on the subway and sweat. Okay. And now it's become much larger involving travel and family and things like that. I do love your friend's exploration of what's next. I love it. I love Very relatable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, you're grabbing a beer. So how's the private jet exploration going? Oh, just a couple of bros. But what, what I'll say is I love the thought that's gone into that. So I love that. What I would also challenge your friend on is, okay, you're going to hit that number at some point. You kind of mathematically have a sense of when that might happen, whether it's through investments or your, your own company. What else can you add to your life or subtract from your life to make it more meaningful? So for example, one thing I really did not like was having to pack my own suitcase. That's an easy solve. If you want to get food delivered every single day in a healthy way, or you want to get a personal trainer, you know that can be quite meaningful and at your friend's scale is basically irrelevant in terms of cost. So I would ask him, okay, you have the money. You're going to get that jet at whatever point. What can you do today to add or subtract from your life that will make it far more meaningful? That is a much harder question than just throwing money at the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I, I appreciate the defense of hedonic treadmill. It's provocative. I, I think the the critique, the reason why people are alarmed with hedonic treadmill is this idea that you think hitting your financial goals will make you happy, and that it doesn't. And Correct. the reason you two x the number is because you're like, oh wait, I'm still not happy, so I must need a little bit more. And it's the treadmill effect of and you keep running and running and running on the treadmill, and it never gets you the satisfaction you think it will. And so I think the lens, like, so the question I'd ask my friend is, well, is flying private internationally going to dramatically improve your happiness or meaning over where it currently is relative to the trade-offs you have to make to get there, right? So if you're saying, and because now you're going to work seven days a week and I'll do all the stuff you don't really want to do in order to get to that new financial goal, well, is it worth it? And so yeah. many people who make a lot of money, I think, end up realizing, hmm, maybe it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, do you do you believe? I love your broader definition of what is a rich life because a rich life, there's a there's the way you frame it. It doesn't just have to do with a number in your bank account. There's a, it's also a mindset shift. It's a it's a reflection of the agency that you have in your life, being thoughtful about choices, thinking about what makes you happy, being honest with that, checking your invisible scripts. Like it's a it's a much deeper concept than just a at a single number. Or do you, is your advice? If I came to you and said, I have a number in mind and the number is X, your reaction would be, that's fine, but tell me why that, that number exists. What do you think that number will get you? What 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 scripts are driving the number? I assume the follow-up questions would determine whether you sort of approve or disapprove of that <laughs> goal, right? The first thing I would do is I would get excited because I love hearing anyone that has thought in any depth about their rich life. You got a number? Great. Tell me. Where'd it come from? How'd you do that? Okay, great. And usually, you know, if somebody has a number, they're fairly technically savvy. They 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 know some of these sort of withdrawal rates and all that stuff. Great. In almost every case when someone comes with that and I start to ask them, "Okay, what's your rich life?" They are not savvy at the softer side of things. The engagement, when I ask them, "Who do you want to take? Where do you, what do you want to do?" They're going to say something like, "Travel." And I push them gently. I say, "Okay, where are you going to go?" Oh, you know, this and that. I want to go to Bali. Okay, great. What seat are you going to sit in on the airplane? Who are you bringing with you? 
Are you going to order room service? And by the way, what hotel are you staying in? That's the texture that I want to know. Why? Because living a rich life, oftentimes, especially by successful people, they put it off until later. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to make this amount of money and then I'll be able to fly private and I'll figure it out. There are things in life you cannot defer. You cannot defer your health, right? You, you try to start lifting at the age of 70. No, you're not going to do that. You cannot defer adventure. You try to start going uh, hiking with gorillas at 70, also not going to happen. And also, you cannot defer crafting and designing a rich life, which is something that as Americans, we specialize in. We say, I'll do it later. And so we go, oh, I'll figure this out later. But you know, I have to, I have to share something very interesting. I was told this by a relative of mine. He said, you have a prime 20 years to spend your money, 40 to 60. Before 40, you have no money. After 60, things change. You know, you may get injured. Your partner may pass away. You may have to be a caregiver. And so you have this finite window and you have to optimize and really spend in a way that may make you uncomfortable because especially if you're a proactive planner, you're thinking, oh, I can't run out of healthcare money and I, I don't want to live till 95 because it's past my actuarial table. Yes, you nerd. You, you should factor in and account for that. But guess what? You're not going skiing when you're 75, most of people. So this is a very big challenge to people to start thinking and living that rich life today and not putting it off till tomorrow. I, I love the idea of the deferred, uh, you know, Tim Ferriss called the deferred life plan. And so much of us, so many of us fall into that trap. You know, one thing I'm reflecting on though is, you know, how, how much thinking about the future do I do with respect to rich life? I mean, one of our mutual friends, Orrin Hoffman, LP at Village, all around interested entrepreneur, once told me that something like I'll be I'll get the quote wrong, but it was something. The essence was like you know seventy percent of, of people who achieve set long term goals, and thirty percent people don't. And he's not one, and and I'm not one actually. So I actually in my own life and career, I've never really set long term objectives and worked backwards. I have sort of short term goals, and I have a range of things that I want to do in the months and one to two to three years ahead. But I've never really had the vision. Uh, looking out, and that, and I haven't had that vision from a t at a tactical career level. Like I've never said, you know, my goal is to be the CEO of Cisco or something. I'm like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to yeah. do that, or or even like my goal is start a company that I take public on New York Stock Exchange. Like I've never had a concrete goal like that. I've had some lifestyle goals, like oh, it'd be nice to be, a, you know, like you. A lot of stuff I've actually already achieved. Like I like not being having to worry about. Uh, this entree price for sad entree price and just ordering the entree of the, of the menu. Or I like being able to Uber whenever I want instead of having to do public transit if that's faster, right? Like this, it, well, maybe I had too low of a bar, but I, I feel like I've, I've checked a lot of those boxes. And I guess, you know, one of the things I worry about sometimes when we think about long-term thinking around like, what is your rich life? What do you want to be when you, you know, manifest that future is are you setting yourself up for disappointment or at least a world of stress and worry about all you're going to have to do to actually make that vision come true. Because if you reflect a little bit on your, on the, on, on your life today and you feel pretty good about your life and you feel pretty happy about how things are going, you know, I'm all for pushing people to be ambitious and I'm, I'm ultra ambitious myself as you are me, but like, you know, is there, how do you react to the uh, concern that if you articulate all of these ideas, okay, what is that plane? What seat are you on? Who are you hiking with? What four seasons you stay at? You know, is it going to, does it, does it create a level of stress or anxiety or just work that you've sort of put on to yourself through this exercise? Do you know what I'm getting at? 
Yeah, I think it's a very good question. And like you, I do not generally make long-term plans. I've learned in my company, I have some very talented coworkers who have helped me think about how to operationalize goal setting and things like that. But day to day, I don't. I wake up, I do what seems fun and right, and that's that. The challenge with living a rich life is that most of us are limited by money, first of all, at least we think we are. And second, we're limited by imagination. So it's very rare that you get the opportunity to actually talk to somebody who has their own rich life and you get to learn the intricacies of how they came. That's why I get so happy when I speak to someone. And they could tell me, one of my students, for example, he said, uh, use your book. My wife and I retired at 36. We drive around the country in an RV. I mean, that sounds like hell to me. I don't want to get in an RV my whole life. But I love that they had this vision and they're living it. So what I've seen too often is that we kind of go through life and we use these invisible scripts that were fed to us by society, our parents, friends, or even the government. And we go, yeah, I guess I do need to get married and have 2.5 kids and buy a house and then complain and then retire and die. And I consider it a tragedy to live a smaller life than you have to. So when I meet somebody, for example, as I recently did on my podcast, and he hates feeling like he's getting ripped off, hates it. So when he orders Instacart groceries, he has one window with Instacart open and another with Safeway, and he's comparing the price of organic strawberries. Ben, as do you one know, does. As one does. And do you know <laughs> his household net worth? Take a guess. I'm guessing an excess of two, 300K. $8 million. <laughs> okay. This is a podcast episode on my podcast. Now, why do I mention this example? Because you can totally see how someone accumulates a massive amount of wealth, but does not change their mentality along the way. And that I consider it a tragedy because if you're making 20K, of course you need to be comparing prices of berries. I get it. But at 8 million, you have so many bigger and more important, adventurous, charitable things you could be thinking about. It's a tragedy to be spending 10 minutes comparing a $10 price difference when it makes zero difference in your life. Totally agree. And I'm going to talk to the shift to the podcast in a second, but just to follow up on this thread, um, you have widely mocked vision boarding and a lot of the <laughs> self help uh, content on the internet, well, including life coaches. Right. Yes. Life coaches. I mean, and you and I have both been in the self-help industry as, you know, purveyors and consumers. We're, you know, we're all, we're also always trying to improve ourselves, right? Level up. And so we've, we've learned a lot from a lot of the gurus out there and we put out our own content, but you've been relentless in your critique, sometimes half kidding, but sometimes I think earnest about some of the bad advice that's out there, self-help. But a lot of what I, and I've never really done vision boarding again, per my comment on long-term, like it just never occurred to me to sit down and say, and again, I sometimes reflect on whether I should do more of it. Sometimes I think, gosh, should I actually look at the next 15 years of my life and set some real long-term goals? I probably would be more likely to achieve them. My issue is I'm just uncertain what those goals should be. Yeah. So instead I'm living sort of, you know, month to month, year to year. But I guess, how do you square your mockery of vision boarding, which again, I've never done, but my understanding is it's literally, it's kind of doing what you're suggesting, right? Which is think about what you want, cut out photos from the magazine of the places you're going to go, put it on a board, think about it, manifest it. Yeah. How do you square that critique with what you're suggesting here? Boy, this is a very, very difficult question, Ben. You're asking me to reflect on my mockery of entire industries. How am I going to, how am I going to square this one? Okay. Let me tell you, let me tell you a couple of things. First of all, 
I I will admit I have done a vision. I've done two vision boards. I want to admit this for all the life coaches out there who think this vindicates them. It doesn't. I guess it would go viral now because that's that's like yeah, that's breaking news. This is breaking news. You've done two vision boards. Yeah, this is going to definitely get covered by Us <laughs> Weekly and TMZ. So I did one for our wedding, my wife and I, and then my wife and I did one together for kind of our life, a house vacations, just kind of just general things. Here's the connection that's often not made. You do a vision board and you you rub your hands together, very self-satisfied, did it, nailed it, crushed it, got my vision out there. That doesn't do shit alone. The key is connecting that to your actual life, your money, your time. That's what matters. So for example, the reason that I would suggest if somebody wants to come up with their rich life vision, get specific, is okay, you've identified that you want to fly business class. Perfect. You can't afford to do it today. Fine. How much is it going to take? Let's actually dig into the data. You know, you might have thought it's $40,000. Turns out it's only $4,000. Now we go into your spending plan, chapter four, and we say, okay, you're going to spend more on the things you love, which is your travel. What are you going to cut costs relentlessly and mercilessly on? Oh my gosh, now that you have a vision and a reason to focus on this, you're going to spend more over there and you're happily and naturally going to cut on the stuff that's just not important to you. That's how you connect the two. Gotcha. So it's sort of the lack of rigor around vision boarding, taking that next level, but, it's, but you're not opposed to the idea of sitting back and asking, hey, what do, what do I want my life to be? Ryan Holiday, a mutual friend of ours, author has a, I believe it's him who has a theory that like sometimes when you write down your goals, you sort of tricked yourself into thinking you've sort of achieved them. Oh, like yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, you're getting public credit and reinforcement for those goals, which is which is really contrarian because many people would say, you know, share your goals publicly, have people hold you accountable, have an accountability buddy, you know, put those goals into the world and you're sort of more likely to manifest it consciously and subconsciously. Um, like I think the secret's 99% bullshit, but there actually is the 1% that's true is if you say shit enough publicly and repeatedly out to people in your network, they will ask you about it. Hey, Ramit, you told me you always wanted to go hiking with gorillas. Have you done that yet? You know, and yeah. that actually can increase the odds of achieving it. But the downside is, is you can get that, you can sort of get the status boost without doing the hard work. What you're pointing at of like connecting the dots for, okay, what am I, what do I need to save to make that goal real? What skills do I need to develop in my career to get into a position where I can achieve that vision? That's exactly right. And I think you are exactly right also about the rigor. It's great to buy a book, buy a course, attend a conference. But many people, this is well-known in the self-development industry, many customers will buy something and they will believe that alone is it. That's all they need to do. Hey, I bought the ticket to the conference. I bought the book. That's just step point one. You got to read the book. Then you got to interpret the book. Then you got to apply the book. Then you're going to make mistakes and you got to keep doing it. Maybe reach out to the author, get a, get a mentorship group. The, the work has just begun. And yet when you do the work, you can live a much richer life than you'd ever imagined. Tell us about your new podcast focused on love and relationships. What are you trying to achieve with it? What's the, what, are the, what are the key themes you're going to hit on the podcast? Well, think of any couple that has fought or disagreed about money. We've only really seen it on sitcoms or in our own households. But what I wanted to do was for the first time ever, is let people hear real stories from real people about what is going on with their money challenges. So this originally started because my wife and I, 
um, were dating and got married. And we went through a process to go through a prenup. And that was very challenging for us. And once we figured that out, I thought, okay, great, like done. But then it has just... And you posted your prenup on your blog so people can go. We'll post that in the show notes. People can go and download that. <laughs> uh, coming, I wanted to build this beautiful model. Let's talk about the model. And my wife was not interested in a model. She had a totally different conception of money. And so we spent a long time getting on the same page about money and disagreeing about spending and, and how much we should save and all this kinds of stuff. And then I started talking to my friends. And there were all kinds of issues, good and bad, in relationships. We have one person who's a high earner, another's not. One's a spender, one's a saver. And because of my access to people, they agreed to come on a podcast, my podcast, and share real numbers. That's why I can tell you, for example, uh, the person who has an $8 million net worth and shops, cross shops for strawberries. And I can tell you, for example, you'll hear the conversation on one of my podcast episodes with a couple. And I asked them, what's your rich life? And they said, well, we want to buy four cottages, rent them out, cash flow them. And I said, that sounds awesome. What are you going to do then? Oh, we want to buy this beautiful RV and we want to take our kids camping to this place. I said, uh, sounds like your kids are going to be about 68 years old before you can do this. Do you think there's a way to maybe shortcut this? And they were completely stumped. They'd built up this vision. I gently pointed out to them, you guys want to go camping? You want to create this magical experience? Could you rent an R- Could you save up for 18 months, rent an RV and go for three weeks? And it dawned on them. They had been deferring their life dream for 40 years when they could accomplish it in about 18 months. So if someone's in a relationship right now and money is a point of stress, what are two or three tips you'd have for how they can broach the topic? Because sometimes it's just creating a space to have the conversation. Like, how do you sort of tee up the conversation? And for you guys, you know, you mentioned the prenup was because you're getting married. That was sort of a forcing function for that. But if you're just sort of, you know, you're two or three years into dating someone, things are going well, you're starting to run into things like, oh, are we going to split the bill or how are we you know, sharing the rent and, you know, any best practices just for approaching the conversation? Starting off, you can use this podcast as an example. Hey, I was listening to Ben's podcast. I heard this guy come on. And, you know, I'm just curious. He got me thinking, what is my rich life? And I realized I've never actually written it down. I've never talked about it with you. And I'd love to hear your vision because we're going to do this together. And so getting into that vision, the details, the texture, um, and it's purely listening and encouragement. One of the common mistakes people make is, they'll say, you know, I want to go on our honeymoon to Indonesia for four weeks. This is one couple on the podcast. And the other partner immediately said, oh, four weeks sounds like a long time, probably get bored. Why don't we just go for like 10 days? And this is not the place for that. As we dug into it, you realized, you know, she was making assumptions about how much work off time he had and other things, but this is an opportunity to build each other up, not minimize dreams. The second thing that I would encourage people to do is to pick, I call it the $100 challenge. You can vary it based on your net worth. If you have a higher net worth, you can change this number. For, for you, it's the $100 million challenge. But you know, for others, it's the $100 challenge. <laughs> I, I tell people, I would like you to spend $100 on yourself in the next 48 hours on something you love. And by the way, you're not allowed to spend it on kids, pets, or charities. It's got to be for you. This is a helpful exercise for people who are very hesitant in spending anything. They're hoarders. 
and they find it very challenging. But if they're able to do it, very gratifying to, to actually spend money and realize their world did not collapse around them. Finally, this is just the beginning, but really hunting for clues with your partner. Hey, how'd you grow up with money? You know, I just realized my parents said this. How do you think about money? Those are some of the ways to get these conversations started. I love the $100 challenge. Uh, Oscar Wilde is reported to have said that uh, everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. I'm curious in the case of money and these money issues, how much of it is about money versus these deeper relationship issues, power structures, gender roles, all that kind of stuff? It's almost never about money. It's almost never. So you're running a podcast about money that's actually not about money. Well, that's what I will teach you to be rich is not about money either. It's about psychology. Um, In order to get in the door, I can teach you about asset allocation and we can talk about expense ratios. But ultimately, when you live the I will teach you to be rich life, you realize that, yeah, money is just a small part of a rich life. And now that I've got this detail out of the way, I've got compounding, I know exactly when I'm going to have 1 million, 2 million, 5 million, whatever the number is for you. Now I get to work on much more interesting things. How do I spend my time? Uh, Who are we taking with us to this beautiful restaurant? Let's be generous. Those are kind of things you get to do. Totally. And so just to to close the loop on the podcast, the podcast is called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Yep. I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. And each episode, you listen to a couple and you can hear them. There'll be different challenges about, you know, we don't have enough or we're an overspender. And regardless of who you are, you're going to be able to relate you're going to be able to hear something where if you're listening to it alone or with your partner, I guarantee you're going to say, oh my God, this person, this I cannot believe they said that, but hey, have we ever had a conversation like that? And that's my goal. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I co-authored a book called The Alliance. It's about how managers can connect with employees about having higher quality career conversations, among other things. And one of the tips we gave, we'd always give managers when we train them on the book is, use the book as the excuse for prompting the conversation. So similar to your advice on, hey, we're listening to Ramit's podcast, uh, or I was listening to Ramit's podcast, you know, wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And he brought up the following concept. I'd like to bring it up with you. It can uh, create an excuse for you to ease into difficult uh, conversations. Totally. Curious, uh, Ramit, does the concept of fuck you money resonate with you? What does it mean if, if so? I don't love the concept. I find the word a little abrasive, first of all, and I think it's off-putting to certain groups. I mean, it's, it's an offensive word. No one should use it. <laughs> the word fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we dig deeper into what it really is, it means I can do what I want when I want. And I like that. I like that idea. I think too often, most of us never really think about what that actually is. And we defer it. So if you tell me I want that, or I want to do what I want when I want, what I really want to know is what do you want? And this is where we get to pull on those threads, these invisible scripts, because this is what I will almost always get from people. First, they give me silence. And then they say exactly this. They go, well, you know, I want to get a house for my family. It doesn't have to be too big of a house. Modest is fine, but da 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 da. And they minimize their own dreams. Oh, you know, I'd like to go traveling. It doesn't have to be business class, but just, you know, something okay. Oh, it's fine. I go, hold on. This is your dream, your rich life. Instead of minimizing it, maximize it. Tell me what that would look like. And so whether it's FU money or whether it's I can do what I want when I want, 
I think that there's an opportunity to push on that and get more descriptive with that, that beautiful tapestry of your life, as opposed to just this surface level word, which ends up with a number. And if there's one thing you take away from today's conversation is that a number is not enough. A number is not enough. That's just a number on a spreadsheet. A rich life is so much deeper than that. I think in today's culture where people are getting canceled left and right for saying inappropriate things on politically divisive topics. Some people think about, and by canceled, this means fired or abused on the internet. There's this great book called, uh, what's it called? So um, so you've been canceled. So, Which tells the story of seven or eight people whose careers and lives were basically just destroyed by a social media mob attacking them for saying the wrong thing. I mean, there's in some sense a, a world in which having fuck you money means that if you get fired from your job or no one wants to hire you or no one wants to fund your company, it's okay. You can, you, you can do what you want. Right. And so it is, it is ultimately this idea of, of doing what you want, but I think there's a special sense of, I think in today's moment, and maybe this is just a moment, a phase, a fad, but there's this idea of people, some people feel like they can't speak uh, their mind on difficult topics. And so, and because they ultimately need to be employed by Google or whatever to pay for their lifestyle, they feel suffocated in a sense. And the folks that can really exercise full freedom of speech can do so because they have fuck you money. How would you react? I don't really agree. I mean, people have wanted F you money long before cancel quote cancel culture was even a thing. So I remember uh, talking about this basically right out of college. So I think that while you know there there can be discussion about whether social media mobs are appropriate and what can be done about them, I think this is just a concept that Americans and maybe others love. I wouldn't necessarily conflate them. It's been around a long time for sure. I guess one of the advantages of having fuck you money, in addition, in as much as that concept we even grant that concept to exist. But in addition to being able to sort of do what you want, I think it's also say what you want, right? There are a lot of people who feel like I can't speak my truth on an issue because it's not popular in whatever my social milieu or industry is because I'm dependent on other people paying me to support my life, right? And Yeah, I mean, and, and that, is, that, that is a true trade-off. Usually I would ask those same people, what kind of things are you feeling constricted about not being able to say publicly? And I would really press them. Like, oh, you you can't say this? What else? What else? What kind of stuff would you say that might potentially get you canceled? Let's get into that. And I think that, frankly, some of those concerns might become much more clear when you hear what kind of things people feel they cannot say. Well, we'll cover those topics after we stop (laughs) uh, recording on this podcast. Uh, Rumi, you're known to be a funny guy, so I'll ask this in a serious way as I can. Can someone become funnier? with practice and and intention to do so? And what advice would you give somebody? So for example, we did an event at Village for our founders um, on humor in business. And we took Q&A and one of our CEOs asked really a touching question. He said, you know, I've been married for 10 years. My wife has stopped laughing at my jokes. And I, I feel like I'm no longer as funny as I used to be. I'm working so hard, et cetera. I'm in tech. Um, what advice would you give him? I mean, if you're listening to a venture capital podcast to learn how to be funny, you have no chance. So I'm sorry, buddy. It's, I can't help you. I mean, listen, you want to learn how to be funny? Go work at Roundtable Pizza and work with some of the world's biggest degenerates like I did when I was 14, 15 years old. That's how I learned what was funny to those guys. I have no idea if you can become funny or not. What do you think? 
Well, uh, spend time around funny people. I have a couple friend uh, where the man is much funnier than the woman when they got married. And they both would acknowledge that in 10 years later, he has dropped an average funniness and she has risen. Like basically they've gotten to an equilibrium because he's not basically getting up leveled every day, but she is. And so like the gap has closed. And so um, spend time around funny people. That's good advice. And work less. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're doing a grab bag here as we just have a few more minutes left for me. Your really important question, what caused you to become so interested in high-end fashion and clothes? You're you know, a heterosexual male who's really secure in his sexual identity, and yet you, you, you invest in fashion and clothes in a really meaningful way. Talk about the origin of that interest and sort of what it means to you. This is a very unusual question, and I love it. It's a great question because we're longtime friends, so only you would ask this. Uh, I do. I do love nice clothes. I think um, I remember graduating from college and I asked one of my friends who was big into fashion. I said, hey, can you take me shopping? And she took me to <clears throat> Macy's in, I think, Palo Alto or Nordstrom. And she said, just pick out anything. And she would pick all this stuff. And she got excited which got me excited. And then I looked at the prices. That was how I was raised. You look at the price tags. She goes, don't look at the prices. Go try it on first. And if you love it, then we'll talk about prices. Totally changed my worldview. And then as I got older and was able to afford different things, I started to fall more in love with the craftsmanship of it. So for example, as part of our honeymoon, we went to you know one of our favorite Italian brands. We went to see their factories and see how they actually make it. And they treat people well, pay them highly. And curate uh, and, and sort of build the next generation of craftsmen. That was amazing. So the yeah, of course, yeah, I like cashmere, but I like what goes into it as well. I think it's, you know, I think for anyone, when I think about peak performers, top performers, their ability to be in awe of excellence is uh, common to them all. And I even find, you know, sometimes, and I'm not super into sports. I played some as a kid, but even when I occasionally, like I usually go to one baseball game a year, like a, a professional baseball game. I don't really know. I'm not really following the teams, but it is kind of amazing. If you can put yourself in the mindset of this person out in the field is like one of the best in the world at this skill. And there are millions of people who've tried to be on this field right now and have been cold away through endless layers of evaluation and if you can put yourself in that mindset, it can it's a really sort of almost spiritual experience to be in their presence. And you can do that in any industry. You don't have to be an expert in it. Although it's as you've done so incredibly well over me, as you traveled and met people, is you're always trying to unpack the keys to their success and draw out that those theories of excellence. And so I think I do think that's a really fascinating part of the of the fashion industry or any industry, frankly, of, of how these brands and executives and products have become so high-end. Yeah. We're almost out of time, Rami. Can I ask one final question, which is, I know you're a huge Bitcoin bull, so uh, go ahead and make the case for why we should all be buying lots of crypto. Uh, the Bitcoin people have gotten very mad at me. First of all, they call me uh, old man, Luddite, fuddy-duddy. Keep in mind, I'm not even 40 years old, and I'm proud to earn their ire because I've never before... Oh, that's not true. I have seen uh, a variety of political parties, employ such cult techniques in supporting something. Now, there's a lot of interesting technology, blockchain, etc. And if you want to buy it as part of your diversified portfolio, you want to buy some Bitcoin or whatever else you want to buy, great. Keep it at 3%, even go to 5 10% if you've got a well-diversified portfolio. There's just one problem. The majority of people who buy this, especially those people uh, on 
Bitcoin on Reddit, they don't have diversified portfolios. They've put everything they've got into a highly speculative asset. And you can see the comments. I post them on my Twitter feed all the time about uh, couldn't, you know, couldn't make it work. So I'm betting it all and putting it all in on this. That is not investing. That's speculation. And so I have a real problem with cult-like mentalities in crypto communities. Is the US dollar a cult? Well, that's a good question. What do you think? I mean, essentially, yes, right? It's just belief on a mass scale that creates a system that works. I think um, I think that that's a worthy question. And I think if you were to ask um, economists and others, they would grapple with you and they would say, you know, hey, we've got some structures, we've built some systems. We also have a lot of time period of historical data. What I don't think they would do is call you a Luddite and say, F you and say, oh, it must, you know, you, you must be uh, shilling for this other thing, fiat, uh, and use really bad logic about uh, gold and all kinds of other stuff. I don't appreciate that. And I don't think it's effective investment for ordinary investors who really should have a basic diversified portfolio as their foundation. So they should get off your lawn, shape up correct. their tone correct, and become smarter. Uh, That's Safety, Read a book. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, author of I Will Teach You Be Rich, producer of a brand new podcast on relationships, money, love, all of the rest. Thank you for being part of the Village Global Podcast. Thanks a lot. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.